I'm going to begin today's sermon a little bit differently than I would normally begin a sermon. I'm going to show you guys a video clip of an interview. Now, this is a, a three-year-old interview, so some of you may be very familiar with You may have seen this before, and that's okay. It just really serves to illustrate what we're going to be seeing in the passage today. So I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead and play this video clip for everyone to see. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's best stories. At the tender age of 28, he's already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. (laughs) But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. That's just a piece of the interview from 60 Minutes a few years ago with Tom Brady. Today's passage has an answer for Tom. Turn to John chapter 4, if you would. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 26. We're not going to preach on the entire passage today, but I want to read the whole thing to you because you need to see the whole context of this wonderful conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well. This is a, a passage of scripture that many people are very familiar with. Tom Brady doesn't even realize what he needs. He doesn't realize what his soul is longing for. He doesn't realize that everything he's been pursuing all of his life will never satisfy him. He'll keep feeling empty. He'll keep thirsting no matter how much fame, no matter how many Super Bowl rings, no matter how much money comes into him. Tom needs to hear today's passage. We need to hear today's passage. So John chapter 4, verse 1. Go ahead and stand if you would as we get ready to read God's Word. We're continuing with our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. And we have said we want to see Jesus more rightly or more fully so we can worship Him more rightly. If any passage of Scripture really drives that home, it's this one today. So John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned... That the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, I'm sorry, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, 
and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, that you give those of us in here ears to hear. Give us eyes to see your holy word. For, Father, we know that apart from the work of your spirit, we'll continue to be blind and continue to be deaf. So, Father, we pray that you'd move amongst us, that your word would go forth and not return void. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is the next stop in our journey through the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. It's a chronological, verse-by-verse walk through the life of Christ. We're gonna, we're, we are um, harmonizing the Gospels as we walk through the life of Christ. And you'll remember that this, this, this flows right out of John chapter 3. Remember in John chapter 3, we left off with Jesus baptizing more people than John was baptizing. Or at least as we know from this verse today, it was his disciples who were actually doing the, the actual baptizing. So Jesus was, his, he was baptizing more people than John was. And, and if you remember John's disciples, they, they beginning to get a little bit jealous about all this. But John would have nothing of it. For he knew that his role was simply to point to the Messiah. To point to the one who was coming from God. The Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The bridegroom of the church. So now Jesus' ministry must increase, and John knew that his own ministry must now decrease. And the first thing we see today is that this increasing influence of Jesus' ministry was noticed by some other people as well. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had been making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So the Pharisees hear that Jesus is having a, quite a successful, fruitful ministry. They didn't like John the Baptist's ministry one bit, but now they've got to deal with another guy on the scene. And this guy's baptizing even more people and drawing even larger crowds than John did. And as the self-appointed religious police, 
the Pharisees were starting to get their feathers a little bit ruffled here. Apparently, this fact that the Pharisees were getting upset about Jesus baptizing now had come to Jesus' ears. He had become aware of this, and so he leaves for Galilee. Now, we don't know all the reasons that Jesus decided to leave. Um, I'm sure he had a variety of reasons, but this we can be sure of is I don't think he was scared of the Pharisees. Don't, don't view this as Jesus fleeing to get away from these mean Pharisees. He's not scared of them. The time would come that he will confront them to their face. The time will come when he gives himself over to their cruelty to be crucified. That time's coming, but the time is not now. And so he heads north to Galilee. Verse 4 says, And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, my immediate question when I read this passage of Scripture... Why does John say that he had to pass through Samaria? Because we know in reality he didn't have to pass. Matter of fact, many Jews, especially very religious Jews, including the respectable rabbis of Jesus' day, they wouldn't even think of actually going through Samaria. They always went around Samaria. So here's a map. So down here is where where Jesus is. He's been baptizing over here in, uh, in the Jordan River. And so he's right here in this area of Judea. And he leaves to go up to Galilee, way up here. And Jesus decides to go straight through Samaria. But in those days, the very pious Jews, especially the rabbis, those who couldn't stand the thought of going through the unclean Samaritans, would go around. They would take this path. They would go over here to Jericho, then cross the Jordan, go up the Transjordan, come back across once they got up to Galilee. That was the path that many people would take those days. So you wonder why... Why it is that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He could have taken the path that everyone else took. Now why did everyone else take this path? Well, it's because they hated the Samaritans. And of course the Samaritans hated the Jews as well. So let me give you just a real brief bit of background here. You'll remember that in the Old Testament, the kingdom, God's people, Israel, broke into two distinct kingdoms. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern tribes and the southern tribes. Now the southern tribes where the house of David was, the political and religious capital was Jerusalem. But for the northern kingdom, they set up their own capital in Samaria. And so they also created their own temple right out here, right off of Mount Gerizim. And so the the northern tribes had their own temple and their own capital. The southern tribes had their own. And in 722 B.C., the northern tribes uh, were conquered. And many of the people of those northern tribes of Samaria were taken away to Assyria. But some people remained in the land. And then what Assyria did was to repopulate the land with foreigners. And when those foreigners came in, they intermingled with the Israelites that were still there. They intermarried. They also created basically a cultural and religious uh, syncretism. They, they mixed Judaism, they mixed their religion in with the religion of the, of the pagan people around them. And it resulted in a very distorted view, a distorted version of Judaism. The, the matter of fact, the Samaritans rejected all of the prophetic literature. The only thing they accepted were the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the Pentateuch. Uh, eventually, the southern kingdom was also conquered, and they were deported to Babylon. And when those Jews returned out of exile... They despised the Samaritans with all of their heart because of their willingness to intermingle with the pagans. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. They viewed them as half-breeds. They viewed them as unclean. And the half-breed Samaritans were also hated by other ethnic groups. So they were really the epitome of what it meant to be an outcast. 
So any self-respecting rabbi or teacher or pious Jew would go around Samaria in order to get to Galilee, even though it greatly extended their journey. But not Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we see him journeying through Samaria. That's the thing about Jesus. He is willing to go to the outcast, to the despised, and to the rejected. Matter of fact, John makes it very clear that it was his mission to go to Samaria. Verse 4 says he had to pass through Samaria. In John's writings, this Greek word translated here, had to, always refers to something of divine necessity or requirement. Let me say that again. In John's writings, in the Gospel of John, every time this word is used, it's translated here, had to, it always refers to something of divine necessity, a requirement that had been placed upon someone or placed upon Jesus. Here's a good example. John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Same word. I must. There's a divine necessity to bring in the other sheep. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Those were Jesus' words. Jesus had a divine appointment in Samaria. He had to go because his father had sent him. And had sent him to seek and to save lost sheep. And there's one of those sheep that's going to be at a well at noon. And he's going into the place where religious types feared to tread. But there's a lost sheep there. So he's going in. A lost sheep, a sick woman, a dead sinner who needs to be found, healed, and born again. So... Verse 5 says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So this is Jacob's well is where he comes to. Now Jacob's well was quite an amazing well. It had been dug 2,000 years before this story by Jacob, obviously, you can read of that in Genesis chapter 33 and Genesis 48. So this well had been springing for 2,000 years. It was quite an impressive thing. Wells normally didn't last for 2,000 years. Matter of fact, this well is very impressive because you can go to Israel today and it's one of those sites where the, the traditional location is probably accurate. Okay, you can go to Jacob's well today and it's still springing water 4,000 years after it had been dug. So it's quite an amazing well, this Jacob's well. Now keep in mind how special this well was as we continue. It was about the sixth hour, which means it was, it was noon. It was the middle of the day. It was the hottest time of the day. So Jesus, in his human nature, got tired just as we do. And he sought a place to rest his feet and perhaps find some shade. He sent his disciples ahead of him into town, which was about half a mile away, to get some food. And then the woman shows up. Perfectly on time for her divine appointment. Now, this is the second very detailed conversation that Jesus, that John records for us in short succession. First we had the conversation with Nicodemus, and now we have this conversation. Now, at first glance, you might say, well, they're very different conversations. Nicodemus was a respected Jewish man and a religious leader. This woman was an outsider, an unclean Samaritan, and as we will see, a very immoral woman. But the differences between Nicodemus and between this unnamed woman are only superficial ones, for they both need the same thing. 
With Nicodemus, Jesus uses the metaphor of birth to help him see his need to be born again by the Spirit and receive life. For this woman, Jesus uses the metaphor of water to help her see her spiritual thirst and her need for living water. Now, we need to see that Jesus' conversation here with this woman broke a lot of social taboos of the day. This would have seemed quite scandalous. He says to her, give me a drink. And she responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now this would have been quite shocking. Jesus' actions here, Jesus' words, her response is, 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 is pretty much what everyone, how everyone would have responded. There were several reasons why this was scandalous. This woman had several strikes against her. Number one, she's a woman. And just the social norms of the day for a man to talk to a strange woman would have not been right. This is, this is strike number one. Strike number two, she was a Samaritan woman. She's from that unclean region called Samaria. Strike two. Strike three, as we will see later, she was a very immoral Samaritan woman. Now most people say that's three strikes, you're out, but not Jesus. You see, Jesus came to save struck out sinners. And only sinners that know they've struck out are sinners ready to be saved. And she was more struck out than we even realized at first. Do you know why she's here at noon? Because she is an outcast even among the outcasts. You see, it wasn't normal to go fetch water from a well at noon. The hottest time of the day. The normal time for the women to go out and fetch water was at the beginning of the day in the morning when it was cool to get water to have for the rest of the day. Or at night right before the sun goes down in evening when it's cool again. You go get water to have for bathing and anything else that you needed for that night. It was not normal to show up at noon. The other thing that's strange is that normally the women went together. It was, like I said, this was about half a mile outside of town. And for protection, it made sense to go with a group of ladies. And they would go together to the well. But not this lady. She's there by herself in the middle of the day. Because she's an outcast even amongst the outcasts. She has a reputation that we'll find out about here as we continue in the passage. Let me just say this morning, if you're here and you, you feel struck out, you feel unlovable, you feel like an outcast, this story just demonstrates that no sinner is outside the reach of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But this request of Jesus is even more unconscionable than we first realize. Jesus is going to ratchet the scandal up a notch here as he continues. He says in verse 9, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now this could be the woman continuing to speak and say these words, or it might just be a, a comment that, that the Apostle John adds in. But regardless, it means the same thing. Okay, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But the problem is that's not really a, a translation that helps us to see what actually is being said here. The phrase literally translated is Jews do not use together with Samaritans. Which means Jews don't share vessels with Samaritans. We don't share cups. We don't share buckets. We don't share uh, uh, vessels of, of jars or anything else. Jesus was asking to drink out of the jar that the Samaritan woman had brought to the well. And that would be doubly scandalous. To drink after such an impure woman. Any self-respecting Jew would be disgusted by the idea. 
But Jesus says, let me, let me drink out of your jar there. You see, his disciples had gone into town. Usually the people carried with them a flask or something that they would use to keep water in made out of camel skin or something. And, but he has sent the disciples into town. They've got all of that. They're, they're getting the supplies for the rest of the journey. And Jesus is here. He has nothing. He says, can I drink? I need a drink. This is a scandal for him to ask for this. I think they try to help get a picture of how scandalous this was. I think we have to rewind the history, the recent history of our own nation and how people acted and felt towards those of other races here in our country. It wasn't long ago that in drugstores, just a stone's throw from this location right here, that you'd walk in and there would be two fountains. One said whites and the other said coloreds. Here in the deep south, it was everywhere, right? That wasn't long ago. So imagine a, in the 1950s, a white male going and standing beside the colored fountain. And as a, a woman comes up, not just a woman, a woman has a reputation of being quite a scandalous person in the community. She comes up and she's filling her water bottle and he says, can I have a drink of your water from your water bottle? Imagine the disgust people would have felt in those days, unjustified disgust because of the racial tensions that existed in our nation at that time. But I think that helps paint a picture of what's happening here. You've got a a Jew asking a Samaritan woman to drink from her jar. But the love of Christ breaks down every social barrier, every cultural barrier, every traditional barrier, every religious barrier, every racial barrier. He breaks them down. He's a barrier-busting Savior to bring his children to himself. For he has children of every nation and tribe and language and people. And he is uniting them to himself so that in him there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For all are his children and all are one in him. He is the barrier-busting, life-giving Messiah. And that's what he's doing in this passage here. But at this moment in the conversation, this woman has no idea the love that is about to be poured out upon her. She has no idea that the greater barrier for her is the barrier between her and her God. She has no idea that Christ is about to break down that barrier. She sees the social barriers coming down, but there's a greater barrier that he's bringing down. She has no idea. She has no idea that she's about to partake of living water. Now, I want to spend the rest of our morning this morning as we walk through the rest of this passage. Like I said earlier, we're only going to get to verse 15. There's no way on earth I was going to get this passage in today. So we're only going to go to verse 15. And we desperately need the rest of the verses to understand these first verses. So I beg you, please come back next week. So if you're visiting with us this morning and you're thinking, ah, I don't know if I like this place all that much. Give us one more week. Because next week's sermon is so tied to this one, okay? But I want to focus the rest of this morning on this living water. I want to see and savor this living water. So my first point this morning is only the living water of Jesus Christ. Only the living water of Jesus Christ, number one, is a free gift. You see, all other attempts, excuse me, all other attempts to quench our thirst are things, and I'm talking about our spiritual thirst in this world, are things that we We put forth effort to earn or achieve or gain. 
Just ask Tom Brady. He earned every bit of what he had. Every bit of his fame. Every bit of those Super Bowl rings. He worked hard. He earned those things. And the things that we seek after in this world to quench our thirst, we have to work for. We have to earn. We have to make it happen. But the water that truly satisfies is an unearned free gift. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift, the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Again, later on in the, in the passage, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Friends, do you see? This woman did not go looking for living water. Jesus is the one on the mission. We get that flipped in our world, don't we? We think people are on a mission trying to find God. That isn't the way the scriptures describe it. Jesus is always the one on the mission seeking and saving the lost sheep. Jesus is on the mission here. He's the one who had to go to Samaria. Jesus is the one who sat down at the well exactly at noon. Jesus is the one who committed a social scandal and initiated conversation with this woman, a Samaritan woman at that, and the town tramp at that. She was trying to stay away from people and just take care of the physical thirst that was forcing her to to be out in public at that time of the day. She did not seek him. He sought her. He invaded her little world, and she would never be the same again. That's our Savior. Living water is a gift. Those of us in here who are Christians this morning, we know that none of us sought Jesus. Jesus found us. None of us sought Jesus. Jesus found us. The scriptures make it so clear that none seek God, but that God sought us while, like lost sheep, we wandered aimlessly. You may object and say, well, but, but, but I know people who are seeking God. They are seeking spiritual truth. You may even look at Tom Brady and say, oh man, he's a seeker. I would say, no, he's not. No, he's not. You don't know people seeking spiritual truth. Thomas Aquinas got it right when he said that people seek the things that only God could give them. Things like peace, relief from guilt, joy. But they do it while they desperately flee from him. People seek the things that only God can give them, but they seek it while desperately fleeing from him. In other words, people want what only God can give them, but they seek it in anything but God. They seek it in anything but God. Just look at Tom Brady. He's desperately trying to find what his soul needs so his soul can be at rest. And he's trying to find it every way he can. And at the end of the interview, he says, I have no idea. He is not a seeker. He is a lost sheep. Well, we don't know if he's a sheep. Hope that the Lord would bring him to himself. But he's lost. He's lost. That's the world we live in. He's not seeking what he he's not seeking what only God can give, but he's seeking it not he's seeking what only God can give, but he's not seeking it in God. Why? Because the sinful nature drives us away from God. 
But the good shepherd, Jesus, seeks and saves the lost and wandering sheep, brings them to himself, and in him they find a satisfaction that they never could have experienced anywhere else. You see, all men are like those to whom Jeremiah prophesied. In Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, They have forsaken God, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's all men, friends. They have forsaken God and hewed out cisterns that can't hold water. Tom Brady has dug cisterns that hold no water. You and I dig cisterns, have dug cisterns that hold no water. This woman here in this passage had dug cisterns that hold no water. And as we will see next week, she went from cistern to cistern to cistern and nothing satisfied her. She sought peace and freedom and joy, but she didn't seek it in God. But oh, God sought her and found her. And he was giving her a gift for the wages of sin is death. Empty cisterns. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. She had no idea that the source of living water, Jesus Christ himself, was sitting and talking to her. But at this point, she, like Nicodemus, doesn't have eyes to see. She can't get beyond the temporal, the physical, the material. So she says to him in verse 11... Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You see, she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand what Jesus is speaking about because she doesn't perceive her spiritual thirst yet. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, she's about to find out. She's about to find out the answer to that question. Oh, how blind sinners are before the Lord opens their eyes. Unless the Lord opens the eyes, man is unable to see and savor Christ. The woman does not have eyes to see yet. We live in a blind world that thinks just about anything and everything or anyone and everyone is greater than Jesus. In reality, this, this response of hers, she's really stiff-arming Jesus. With this question in order to justify herself and her people. Our father Jacob, you better than that, huh? It's kind of what she's asking here. Oh yeah, well Jacob dug this well. Who do you think you are? So too people are saying in a million different ways that Jesus is good. But he isn't better than whatever. Whatever you want to put in the blank. Yeah, Jesus is great and all, but he's not better than What mercy Jesus has on sinners. How gentle our Lord is with this woman. Isn't he so gentle with her? So he continues to draw her attention away from the temporal and the physical and the material. And in doing so, he answers her question. Her question was, are you greater? He says to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Which brings me to my second point this morning. Only the living water of Jesus Christ is all satisfying. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But not just this water. Again, Jesus is about to expose her spiritual need. 
In verse 16, he'll begin to expose her spiritual need. So we need to see that he's, he's talking more here, more than just about her physical need for water. He's talking about anything, anything that we, we, we seek in this temporal, physical world that, that, that we try to satisfy ourselves with will eventually, eventually let us down. So anything we try to quench our thirst with in this world will eventually let us down, including for this woman, six different sexual partners. This woman had gone from man to man, and she was still thirsty. Whatever this world has to offer you, it is a temporal, empty cistern, and it will not satisfy you will be thirsty again. Christian, don't get sucked into this world that drives you to seek your satisfaction outside of Christ, the fount of living water. A new toy, a new set of clothes, a new hairstyle, a new car, a social media to immerse yourself in, a new TV show, a new computer, a new app, a new gadget, a new 10-step plan, a new book, a new job, a new house, a new spouse. Nothing will satisfy you. You will be thirsty again. Verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Why? Because our true thirst The thirst of our soul can only be satisfied in Christ. And that's the Savior's call to you this morning. Come and drink of the only water that can satisfy you. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Remember, it's a gift. Without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Remember, everything the world tells you to satisfy your thirst with, you have to earn. Isaiah goes on, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Which was to come and repent. Come to the living water who can give you life. Why? Why, O sinner, do you spend your days laboring for, working for, aiming for, sweating for, fretting for what does not satisfy? You need Christ. Stop fooling yourself by thinking you can find satisfaction anywhere else. Jesus says later in this book of John, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst You see, the Israelites in the wilderness didn't need more manna and quail. They needed Jesus. The 500 who were fed by Jesus didn't need more bread and and fish. They needed Jesus. The woman at the well didn't need better water. She needed Jesus. Tom Brady doesn't need another Super Bowl ring. He needs Jesus. Sinner, you need Jesus. You need Christ and Christ alone. And only then will you truly be satisfied. Our Lord would say later in John chapter 7, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39 of that same chapter, Jesus says, He says this, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. So this, this fountain of living water that Jesus speaks of in John chapter 7, and here is the Holy Spirit's presence within a believer. The one who comes and drinks will be satisfied. He won't be satisfied because one drink is enough. Don't, don't misread this. It isn't saying, oh, one drink of Jesus and 
you're good to go. He's not going to be satisfied because one drink is enough. No, he'll be satisfied. He'll want to keep on drinking. He'll want more and more. Once you've tasted the water Jesus has to offer, you want more. He'll be satisfied because the water never stops. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. Verse 14, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So my final point is this. Only the living water of Jesus Christ is internal and eternal. It's internal. Not that it comes from us. It doesn't. Jesus is not saying, find your inner spring. That's not what he's saying here. Find your inner goodness, your inner peace. No, he says, this is the water that I will give him. Jesus puts the spring into the heart, which according to John seven thirty nine is the Holy Spirit. Jesus puts the Holy Spirit into the heart of a believer, and it becomes in him a spring of water welling up. A living spring, a never-ending spring, always present, a deposit, a guarantee. Welling up doesn't quite get the picture for us here. This, this word in the Greek actually means leaping up. So, or exploding up. Now, I, th- I think Francis is here. Francis, you remember when the water line broke in my front yard? We did a great job fixing that, didn't we? It only took us like eight hours. Okay, so the water, all of a sudden, I go out one morning, and there's water leaping up out of my yard. Why is there water leaping up out of my yard? Okay, because the water line had broken. Now, Francis and I spent a great bit of time trying to get that to work, and we did a fabulous job. It only broke like a couple months later, and we had to do it all again. But anyway, that, I remember that just welling up, just springing up out of the ground, and thank goodness we got that stopped, but thank goodness this doesn't stop. The Holy Spirit's there, and it just wells up. Just, the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit just springing up in your life. It's bubbling up. It's unstoppable. It's uncontainable. It just keeps coming and coming and overflowing. What a gracious gift that Jesus would put into the hearts of sinners. His ever-present Holy Spirit, living water. See and savor that, friends. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, I'm sorry. I can't can't explain it right. Words fail me to explain what it's like to have the living water of the Holy Spirit inside of you. I can't explain it. You can't explain a living well. That resides in the heart. But I do know this. It keeps on springing forth. And according to Jesus, it'll keep doing it because it leads to eternal life. It is a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Spirit of God is placed into the heart of a sinner. And it both gives new life to the sinner and a new way of living to the sinner. As the Spirit flows, the sinner grows in holiness. The spiritual spring of the Holy Spirit is a never-ending water sanctifying the sinner, creating in him holiness that leads to eternal life. And friend, our hope and our security isn't in us keeping the water flowing. Our hope and our security is in Jesus who put the Spirit in us in a deposit an eternal spring in us guaranteeing eternal life. That's where the hope is. I mentioned earlier that Jacob's well was great. It's still springing today. It's still flowing today. I think it's quite apt. It's quite interesting that Jesus chooses this spot to speak about eternal flowing water. Because that well is still going today, but it will cease one day. But the well that Jesus puts in the heart, the well he dug, will never cease. It continues. 
So the living water of Jesus Christ is a free gift. It's all satisfying. It's internal and eternal. And I wish I could say the woman got it at this point. But she didn't. Matter of fact, she's still thinking of the material, the physical, the temporal. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She doesn't quite get it yet. She still wants something other than what Jesus is offering. So now Jesus is going to have to take the scalpel of the seventh commandment and cut this woman to the heart in order to create a place for living water to reside. That's what we're about to see. So far she has remained at the surface level, but Jesus is about to dive deep into her heart. And it's going to be painful for her. She will not desire Jesus' living water until her hard heart is tilled up by the law of God. We just talked about that not too long ago in the evangelism class. That exact thing. Love how God just puts these things together. She can't receive that living water until God's law penetrates her heart here. We'll see in the next passage. And creates, cuts open a place for living water to reside. He's about to dig a well. But digging involves cutting. We'll get to that next week. But for now, let me plead with you. If you're here and you're an unbeliever this morning, stop trying to find your satisfaction in empty cisterns. There is only one who can satisfy. His name is Jesus. But you will need to see, as our woman at the well will see in these coming verses, that you are a sinner. You are a rebel. Your pursuit of empty cisterns is more than just foolishness. It's idolatry. It's spiritual adultery. It's cosmic rebellion. And you justly deserve hell. But Jesus came and died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God against sinners and grant them his perfection, his righteousness, so that all who call on him, all who come to the fountain of living water and put their faith in him alone will be saved and will be satisfied. Will be saved and will be satisfied. Unbeliever, come to the living fountain this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for this group of people that are here right now that, Lord, I don't know the spiritual condition of anyone in this room. I could have some good guesses, but Father, I, I know that more than likely in a group this size, there are some here who have been playing a religious game all their life and have never really had a taste of the living water. Oh God, I pray that you'd show them that even a religious game, a Baptist game of going to church and doing Baptist things is an empty cistern. And that God, we would seek all of our hope, put all of our hope, seek for all of our satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. But God, I pray that you'd cut to the heart because sinners have to be aware of the bad news of their sin before they're willing to receive the good news of an eternal spring of living water that's ready to burst forth in their heart if Jesus chooses to put it there. So God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts this morning for those of us in here who are believers. 
Oh, how, how quickly we, we forget who we are. How often we, we look at the empty cisterns and for whatever reason, our flesh wants to go back to them. God, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us for looking at what the world is, is partaking of and thinking it's something. When we've got the spring of living water in us. So God, I pray that you'd use your word to draw us to you. Draw unbelievers to yourself this morning because you are the seeker. This is a seeker-sensitive service because we're sensitive to your Holy Spirit. So Father, I ask that you would seek out lost sinners today. And for those of us who are believers, Lord, keep doing surgical work on us. Because there's so many empty cisterns we keep returning to. And grow us in holiness. May that water keep flowing and keep cleaning us. Cleansing us from sin, sanctifying us, and making us people who are holy. Because without holiness, no one will see God. So God, we pray that you would move in this place as we close with a song and a time of response. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.